You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Henry Tetley. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today, I'm your host. Okay, welcome back, guys. So today's installment of the Evolution Exchange, we're going to be talking about Beyond Scrum, navigating development methodologies. Um, so we've got a, a great panel here today, um, and let's get into the intros. So, uh, Anthony, would you would you like to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Anthony Mayne Franklin. I'm the CTO at Utopia. Uh, so we're a, a sort of e-commerce logistics company um, based out of Sydney. Uh, our I guess our, our mission is to sort of you know decarbonize and democratize logistics. Uh, so we've got uh, yeah our own warehouse full of uh, a lot of uh, robotics and automation uh, that we then fulfill orders from for um, yeah, merchants that might be using systems like Shopify, for example, um, allowing them to compete with the likes of Amazon. Fantastic. Cheers, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Mike, over to yourself. Thanks very much. Um, Anthony, I'd love to hear more about the robots at some point, um, but, uh, but maybe later in the conversation. So my name's Mike Mengel. I'm the CTO of CTO Labs. Uh, we're a uh, consultancy firm that help to do kind of analysis on investment uh, that investors want to do. So if they need to do a technology due diligence, they come to us uh, because typically the investors don't know that much about the tech side. So we go in and we make sure that their investment is safe and the growth trajectories work and um, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Um, and I run a, oh, I run the, I run the, the team inside there. That's that's it. Cheers, Mike. And Jonah, over to yourself. Hey, yeah, nice to meet you guys. Uh, yeah, my name's Jonah. Um, I come from my background is in software engineering. I sort of started my career more in the enterprise side of things. So, Amazon and Alaskan were the first two companies I worked for, and then since it's been worked for government for a little bit and then a few different startups and at this current point in time uh, I've co-founded a property technology company um, about a year ago so I'm I'm the CTA CTO role for that company and uh, we're basically building software to do regulatory analysis so to provide answers to property professionals such as architects and developers answers around the regulations and we're using generative AI to do so, that we're using generative AI to understand the regulations, extract um, extract answers based on users' queries, and um, also to assess development potential at different sites. Awesome. Cheers, Jonah. And uh, last but not least, Tom, over to you, Zad. Henry, uh, I guess I'm the odd one out. I'm not a CTO for a change. I'm an engineering manager in uh, safety culture. Uh, it's a Sydney-based company which I guess started as, as the name suggests, as uh, a I guess checklist application that uh, contributed primarily to frontline worker safety. And since then, we have diversified and uh, we have expanded on the initial idea. And we deal with a lot of the the problems in organization that are related either to safety or to quality or to speed that is built like for the benefit of the frontline workers. So we do trainings, uh, we do automatic sensor management where you let people know, for example, that you know, your fridge has been open for too long and uh, your stock might be going off. So right now the company works more about like improvements of other companies by empowering the frontline workers to have the data and to collect data and to act 
without a lot of, I guess, central uh, central governments relying on, on on managing a lot of those. Uh, so I, I currently manage uh, two teams. One of them is, I guess, your typical feature team that has a bunch of different engineers and build features, and the one that is uh, more architecture-based, which is a bunch of backend engineers that deal with like hard engineering problems that users might not necessarily know that our problems or care about us solving them, but long-term work for the benefit of, of the engineering in the company. Fantastic. Cheers, Tom. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us, guys. It's uh, I'm sure it's going to be um, a real uh, a real great topic to uh, to discuss with some really good valuable insights. Um, so let's uh, let's kick off into the the first um, subtopic of of today's discussion. So, um, Anthony, I know you wanted to talk about the um, the current methodology that you're currently using within your current company or team. Um, I guess a little bit about how that works and if there's a particular reason that um, as to why you've adopted that methodology opposed to a different different version. Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, we've invented our own methodology, essentially. Well, invented is a strong word. We've uh, stolen a bunch of things from things that we liked and we threw up bits we didn't like from a whole bunch of different methodologies. Um, so we've taken a bit from, you know, Scrum and Kanban and, uh, yeah, ShapeUp. Um, and we basically, we call it Upshot. Um, for some reason, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's basically yeah, I'm going to give a rundown of how it works. So, for any given project, we'll basically have three phases. So we'll start out with discovery, uh, where you know we're trying to address the the four risks uh, for you know a, a feature. So that's usability risk, uh, viability risk, value risk, and feasibility risk. Um, so that's a lot uh, of uh, yeah, a lot of work from product managers and product designers, um, mostly addressing those uh, the first those first three risks, and uh, a bit of in input from engineers on that uh, feasibility risk. Um, and you know, we kind of take like a you know double diamond sort of approach there. So first, we'll make sure we're solving the right problem. Um, you know, that we're confident that this problem is the actual problem and you know the root cause problem that we want to solve. Uh, and that it's a problem we think is, is good, you know, deliver value to people if we solve it and serve the business as well. Uh, and then we start looking at, okay, what are the different solutions to this problem? How's that gonna, gonna work? Um, and, you know, we'll start running usability testing and, um, uh, yeah, then doing customer interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the second phase then we have is a, a sort of planning phase. So this is pretty short, we try, try to keep this the suite, um, you know, preferably a, a week, maybe two weeks if it's a, something particularly big. Uh, but we'll do a bit of planning around the architecture. Um, we'll look at the, the, you know, the tickets that are going to be in that, in that uh, project. Uh, and we'll also plan a, a kickoff, a delivery kickoff for that project, um, which is quite a, quite a bit of work, uh, actually, to get that sort of all, all sorted out. Um, but we try and get through that pretty quickly, but have a bit of a yeah, more plan in place. And then we move into a delivery phase where we're actually just delivering uh, yeah, the project that we, we have agreed to, to deliver, which is a pretty straightforward part of the process. It's um, uh, we'll just, you know, uh, they, they'll be a project clean, they'll run that, that phase of the project, um, and they'll give, you know, updates to stakeholders on a regular basis. They'll make sure that they work towards their milestones. Um, and it basically leaves people uh, empower to deliver on that, those projects in the way they see fit. Um, you know, so some, some project leads have liked, uh, 
having a fortnightly catch up and doing some of the things that are a bit more scrum-like. Some of them haven't really felt the need to do that. And I've just kind of given a weekly update that's, you know, here's the progress that we've done. And the update isn't enough so sense of planning on terms of where they need to focus next. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty open in terms of how delivery exactly works, but the discovery and planning phases of things are pretty well um, set out. And one of the really important things that we do is in the delivery kickoff, we go through a lot. Um, so we get all the stakeholders together in, in the room. Um, you know, this might be uh, different people across the business who care about this particular uh, project. Um, you all go through all the roles, the people that are working on that project. We'll look at the problem statement and make sure that we're clear. Everyone agrees on the problem that we're trying to solve um, with this, with the yeah, the project. We'll look at the, what the vision is exactly, what we think the solution is that we're going to really stick to. Um, it sums up in sort of like a sentence: the business objectives um, that we actually think this thing is going to to impact. What's in and out of scope, which is probably the. I guess maybe one of the most contentious little bits of the kickoff, but at that point it should be all sorted out. Um, but yeah, we're that way we don't have any surprises at the end of the project. Some stakeholder doesn't come along and go, Oh, I thought this project was going to solve my problem. You know, it, no, it's not. Uh, we also look at what tech debt we're going to get uh, addressed in that project because there might be some tech debt that we need to pay back to be able to deliver that project and you know, to, to the standard that we need or to make it feasible um, as we'll address that there, make sure we've thought about that um, and also keep track of any tech that we know that we're actually introducing in that. Hey, Anthony, can I ask yeah. a question? Um, the, uh, the, the, the first couple of phases, uh, it sounds like this is for like your big, massive, you know, big project initiatives. How do you right size that for the smaller pieces that need to kind of flow through the system? Maybe, maybe I don't know, like a an, an older system that doesn't maybe have the the functional team in place or something. Yeah, so I, it's a really good question. That actually it's something I was uh, um, uh, going to weave in there and kind of skipped over. Is that we actually have sort of two sizes of this process. Um, so we've got sizes and we've got projects. Um, so something that, that's, uh, what I've referred to so far as a project is really what we refer to as a saga. Um, uh, but I didn't want to introduce that terminology up front because that would just get confusing. Um, but so the larger pieces are sagas and we generally do a lot more effort on those upfront pieces on the overall saga. And then we break it down into smaller projects that we can deliver over a much smaller, uh, timeframe. And also gives us the ability to, you know, chop and change if we need to or change directions. And also so we don't pay too much cost up front, planning something that, you know, we might deliver you know, that first project out of the side and go, oh, some of our hypotheses here were actually incorrect. Um, and, you know, we need to then adjust course. So that, that helps protect, our, I guess, yeah, how much time we're investing overall. But the, one of the bigger upsides of having that sort of, um, Saga component of the larger pieces of work that need us that sort of saga level perspective is that we're able to get a a vision to work towards in a sense that I've not experienced it at other companies myself. Um, where you know that this is a piece of something that is fitting into the larger picture and how it's really gonna fit together with the the customer expectations and the experience that we want to deliver for them, um, which is really helpful for the architecture 
side of things as well to make sure we're not uh, backing ourselves into a corner with the architecture if we were only considering you know, the very first slice out of many. Awesome. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. 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 Thanks. Cool. Um, but yeah, in terms of why we chose um, this, I, it, there's a lot of costs that come uh, with with Scrum, um, and you can even kind of look at this sometimes in head count as well, um, because you know uh, some businesses will will have Scrum masters or delivery managers um, or people who basically run the process. Um, and then, you know, you've got, uh, some businesses split product management and product owner into two separate roles and kind of make the product owner a bit of a scrum master and all these kind of, um, uh, aspects, but that also limits it. It, it really limits the engineers, uh, ability to kind of empower themselves and to build relationships across the company and to develop a real product mindset and ask you know, questions like why exactly are we doing this? How much um, uh, you know, is this really going to benefit our, our customers? Yeah, is this really the right solution? And those questions from engineers are so valuable because they're right at the front of the problem and the solution. And if you put too many layers between them and the product manager who's gone and spoken to the customer, you lose so much from the engineers in terms of their ability to to feel like they have an uh, input on where the product is going. Cool, awesome. Well, uh, really appreciate the uh, the breakdown there of um, the, the the methodology you're using. Um, that's a really good insight. So, cheers, Anthony. Um, Tom, what, what about yourself? What, what do you guys use? Uh, so, I mean, throughout the company, I guess we have enough teams to have some variation, uh, but I guess Scrum and Kanban are, you know, kind of the, the defaults that the team, uh, the teams uh, default to. And uh, in the teams, both of the teams uh, that I manage, we use Scrum and we use a pretty vanilla Scrum. Uh, but when I say vanilla Scrum, you know, people think, for example, like Antti mentioned, like product owners and uh, Scrum masters. So we don't have, I guess, the the kind of the management kind of overhead of all of this, but we do follow a lot of, you know, uh, I guess most of the same, uh, you know, most of the same structure, most of the same uh, core principles. And the funny thing is that we have, when I joined, we didn't follow Scrum, like the team didn't, the team didn't follow Scrum. And I didn't really intend for us to say like, hey, let's just show Scrum in here. But I, do, I guess I have done it, you know, successfully in the past. And I feel like, you know, there are value, like a lot of decisions that were made or a lot of, you know, a lot of things that happened during, during the vanilla scrum were like made to solve specific problems. So it's looking through the problems within the team and the team said like, okay, we don't do any sprints or anything like this, but like, we just catch up every week just to catch up on our work. Uh, and then after looking at this for a time, we, I figured like, People said like, oh, there's like a lot of overhead and a lot of stress. So just figured like, okay, why don't we catch up every two weeks instead of one week? Uh, and then this worked. People were like, okay, this this makes a bit more sense. And then we figured like, okay, but like if we're already catching up, you know, every two weeks, so like we might bring a little bit of structure into this. And then as we have started changing things, we said like, okay, if we're changing things regularly, might as well, you know, have a dedicated catch up to just chat about like how are we doing changing things. And we've kind of slowly introduced all of the elements of Scrum that initially were 
the team had removed because they felt like this is just overhead. But since we've started with like, this is actual problem and pain that team is experiencing and, uh, you know, this could solve it. But then we've kind of ended up just doing vanilla scrum. Uh, but the interesting part is when Anthony explained, you know, the, 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 the stuff that they do, like, this is actually a very similar thing to what we follow. Maybe like the framework is different because throughout, it's like we're basically running sprints like throughout the year, like regardless of the, the like the, the project stage, uh, even if it's a large project. But we go through all of the same stages, it's just the work that's in this sprint difference. So for example, we do have right now, we're in a phase where we have engineering, some designers and the product team hashing out a lot of the, a lot of the features for a lot of the functionality for a specific feature and then doing some engineering spikes or doing some investigations and doing some whiteboarding of like, if we do it this way, this kind of technical should work and this will, you know, we're trying to assess feasibility and risk like very early on with the notion that uh, as, as, as Anthony mentioned, there's the, the later you talk about or solve some of those problems, the more costly they are to solve. So we want to do this earlier, but we still, the work, like we initially felt like maybe we shouldn't be in the sprint doing this, but all of this still works because we still define the work that needs to get done. We still define like, why are we doing this? We still get some value of this. So maybe the value for this sprint is to be able to assess the risk and get like a range of estimates. And that's what we're working on with the team. And this engineering engineers not really doing like typical software engineering work. Uh, and working on a very similar things that they might in Anthony's organizations. But we still found that the cadence of like talking about our work once every two weeks, having retro to talk about like what worked and what didn't work, uh, you know, trying to use uh, the most, I guess, the most controversial things that ended up working as story points. I feel like there could be a whole podcast about just story points. But we found a way to like do the bare minimum of trying to get some story points in there and then say, okay, we have, you know, spend 45 minutes on this. And then we roughly have an idea of, you know, how much work we can take on for the next two weeks. And we use this very lightly to give us an idea of when have we talked about and planned enough that we won't have to worry about like planning our work for the next two weeks or so. Uh, and it seems to work quite well, but I am aware that on one hand, we're doing just very basic vanilla scrum from the like pure day-to-day uh, -day kind of ceremony perspective. But also, if you want to go all the way to the roots, then you would say, oh, you have to like ship user value every sprint. And like sometimes the value we create is understanding the project and, you know, having done risk analysis, which is, you know, like a scrum purist would tell me that this is not what sprints are supposed to be. Uh, but that's kind of where we are. Uh, and I guess we're still constantly changing and evolving, but it feels like a lot of the things that were initially ditched because we just did them badly, I guess, uh, were brought back as solutions to specific problems. Uh, and that's where we are at the time being. I feel like you validated the, the process of like your, your software development lifecycle, you validated it because you've evolved it to solve, like you've continuously improved it and evolved it to solve certain problems. And you've managed to just lean into, say, the Scrum handbook and go, oh, that'll solve that problem. I think that's quite, it's, 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 yeah, it's quite a nice way of, of approaching it. Uh, you, you probably don't have much waste in your process, would be my guess. 
Sorry, you mean waste? Are you, uh, you probably don't have much waste, uh, as in like lean engineering. You don't have much waste in your processes, would be my guess. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> uh, I would say that we do have, I guess, some ways that we know of. But I think the the biggest challenge we have is that the things things change. Like we constantly evolve because we are a different team than we were a year ago, for example. So in terms of waste, like there are things that worked really well and we're very lean and we're all just, you know, on lock. But then, you know, three engineers left the team and then five engineers joined the team. And all of a sudden, things we have taken for granted and have done, you know, several times now take longer. So people say, hey, the meeting, we had like a 45 meeting to catch up. And now it's like an hour and a half. And now this is blow. This is not needed. But I guess having done this successfully, a lot of the ways we have right now and how we're trying to solve it is that we are bad at onboarding new people into how to follow what we do effectively, especially because we follow a lot of the similar beats as other companies. People say like, oh, story points, I'm going to spend like two hours in a room and discuss this at length. I'm like, that's not what we do, but people have to unlearn this when they come. So the waste comes from like the change that happens around us and we try to like adapt and then hopefully you know soon after a, a bigger smaller change we're back to like this is the we're just chopping off what doesn't work yes how do you get people to talk about story points without it going for two hours <laughs> so uh the the one of the things we do we're trying to lean into is doing a lot of prep and stuff i guess asynchronously so for example we say hey this is like the next five tickets that we'll like you to pick up for the sprint. And then uh, there's, by now, lucky there's there's a lot of tools for that. But I would send those out and say, hey, guys, read all of this, throw in your story points over this just like at your own time. And then by the end of this, we'll say like, there are, you know, three tickets that are just very uncontroversial and everyone has read. So we're going to actually go and meet and say like, okay, yep, yep, yep. And then two of them, you know, people had like one of the different ideas about them and we'll chat about those. And then the nice thing about this is that we're like a lot of the value that we found in going through this exercise isn't even like the story point at the end, but it's the fact that like people read through the work, think about this, give their opinion, and then like we can see if there's any difference of opinion. So this is one of the reasons like we still stick with the story point estimation because there's extra value, but like the actual notion of like how accurate the points are is useful data, but not the thing that we're trying to, you know, to focus too much on. Awesome. awesome. Cheers, Tom. Um, and Jonah, what, what about yourself? What do you guys use? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, my case is a little unique at the moment because we're such a small company. At the moment, it's just me and my business partner right now. So it's quite informal. Most of our communication happens really on a, on a daily level at stand-up like we have probably 45 minute stand-ups every morning and since it's just the two of us there's not we don't really need to put much constraints on how we use that meeting but um, that's where we really stay in sync on you know what we're working on i might not have a cto so i'm doing most of the software development and he's doing most of the business strategy so that's kind of our point in which we're we're in sync. So it's very informal now. It's not really how most companies want to model it, but um, I could, before when we, we had, we did have a handful of uh, interns 
um, in which case we were doing more of a, you know, more of a classic scrum methodology. So sort of the way I see it is uh, scrum is built for teams, not teams are not built for scrum. So you sort of need to adopt it to what works best for your situation and your team, because every company is different. The type of work you're working on is going to be different. Like, you know, some com some teams are going to be focused more on technical debt. Some are going to be more feature driven. Some are going to be like big projects to spend years. Some are going to be fast, very fast paced projects or how agile you need to be. So you really need to tune it to your team and what you're working on. Most teams I've been on, I've been a bit hybrid between Scrum and Kanban. Um, probably leaning a bit more towards Scrum. Like Scrum's been quite nice in it. There's a lot of predictability in how long something's going to take. It's really predictable for the engineers. They know what they're working on for, for that sprint. In my case, it's usually been two week sprints. Um, product managers have good visibility into what's, what's happening. Um, but the downside of pure scrum that I've often seen is it's a bit rigid in that it's hard to fit in new pieces of work that might come up as high priority, which can be good because sometimes it can be distracting for a team to like context switch in the middle of a sprint, but sometimes it is necessary. Um, so usually my teams have been a bit hybrid where we try to stick to scrum, but you know, if, if there's something high priority that comes in that we need and we need to pivot, uh, we will sometimes, um, adjust the work in the sprint. Um, yeah, on top of that, you know, the classical, you know, the planning meetings, you know, we do point estimation to, um, so you sort of track your velocity over time from sprint to sprint. And but to track your velocity, you need to know how much work is going to sprint to do that. We have, of course, story point estimation, which we would normally do with point poker. So all the developers together sort of estimating what, how much each task is going to take through this concept of points, which are completely relative, of course. Um, and that's a good opportunity to find when something is too ambiguous as well. It doesn't be broken down into subtasks. Um, it's a good opportunity for engineers to kind of get that shared understanding, the shared understanding of the task. Oftentimes there's a lot of discrepancies among what different people think a task actually is. Um, and then um, you can use the output of that to kind of know the playing field of your tasks at hand and you know how much you can fit into your sprint. Um, so that's, um, so that's a great communication exercise and ensuring, you know, you know what you can actually work on the next few weeks. And then of course are the retrospective meetings, which have always been quite valuable. So to me, retrospectives are all about process improvement, learning about how you could improve your agile processes, you know, do you need to make a little bit more scrum, a bit more Kanban or are planning means taking too long or is team working well together? Trying <clears throat> to cover all of those, um, those sort of squeaky bits in the process and work together as a team to, to improve how you're working. Yeah, absolutely. 
Awesome. Um, cheers, Jonah. And uh, Mike, what about yourself? What are you guys using over there? Uh, well, mine's probably a bit unique as well because we're mainly a consultancy service. So we, we do write some software um, and build IP ourselves, but most of our engineers are working on client sites. So we, we go on and I would probably say that 80% of our clients historically have been doing a scrum variation, maybe 20% um, around the Kanban. Um, so yeah, I think um, I think what, what happens is we end up going in uh, into, because it's we often get brownfield projects over greenfield just because it's just the way that the way the work is um and the brownfield stuff obviously that's an established process and you know we can we we tend to put pretty pretty experienced people in we, we're quite top heavy in terms of experience and leadership so we put experienced people in we're experienced enough in the consultancy space to to kind of fall in line for a little while while we just you know kind of take scope of the the, the environment and the landscape and then and then we start to poke some questions around why are you doing this why are you doing this process have you thought about this process now sometimes things have evolved over time and it makes absolutely it makes absolute sense but occasionally you get this oh it's just the way we've always done it so um our people go in and we just make sure that um there's well when we when we leave a project more often than not we've improved on on the sdlc process um at least to some degree um so yeah, I think it's probably a bit fluid. Um, I'd say depending on the the experience of the team, um, if the experience of the team that we're joining they're, they're fairly fairly low experienced or their their um, their skill set isn't isn't like your super super high, you know, like mega performers, then we'd probably say that the ceremonies from Scrum are probably a better fit um, because there's a, a repeatable pattern, something that somebody can follow. And only once you've done that for a number of years and you've got that experience, do you know when to actually go, that isn't the right thing for this process. Um, and yeah, we've got, I've probably got a bunch of war stories about that sort of stuff, but, but yeah, so I would say that ours is a bit of a mix. Um, we've, we've been in and seen all sorts and as part of the building the software, part of the, the role that we, that we play, we, we also go in and we build software, but we also do a lot of assessments on, uh, many, many businesses. So we've, we've seen a lot of, a lot of different SDLCs in place. Um, some of them are golden and really, really good. And some of them are not so good. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting perspective to be able to go in and see, say 50 businesses in a year, go really, really deep and then find, um, find exactly what trends people are doing and you know how the how the industry is moving so awesome cheers mike um and so leading in quite nicely into the next question so how do you view the relevance of versatility of vanilla scrum in today's tech landscape and what are the aspects that you believe are crucial to scrutinize in order to determine the effectiveness um tom would you like to, to kick us off with that one uh yeah sure so I feel like there is, I've been wondering about this myself uh, for quite a while, especially in today where I think when Scrum and Agile, you know, conversation were happening, if you said like, oh, we're going to deliver value every two weeks, it was radical. Of like every two weeks, like how are we going to keep up the pace? And now, you know, I feel like I go to an organization and if they don't, you know, release, like deploy to production multiple times a day, I'm like, something is wrong here, right? So there's this bit of a disconnect of like trying to aim for two weeks where, you know, you're really shipping things every day. Um, but the interesting thing that happened when I joined Safety Culture, this is the first company I worked with that has a really strong component of native mobile uh, applications. And I here learned that like in the mobile land, if you're writing mobile native applications, 
releasing things every two weeks uh, isn't really a bad target to have because there's the whole process of going through the app stores and you know there's I guess a more uh, a le less frequent cadence uh, actually makes more sense as you're trying to like push stuff to the app store and uh, to the Google Play Store. But overall, I found that the process is mostly about the people and how they interact together. So I guess other than the fact that we can actually release things, you know, at any given minute if we want to, for the most part, then most of the things apply still because they're solving people problems, they're solving planning problems, they're solving like how do people work effectively. Uh, and I haven't, uh, maybe I'm blind to that, but I haven't seen like a big change into like, no, these things aren't relevant anymore. Uh, if anything, I feel like a lot of Scrum is like taken a bit for granted. People like, oh, look, we know what it is. We're just going to follow it. But then like it's as the time went past, people have started caring less. And so like, well, we just do the meeting because that's what Scrum is. But don't really focus on like, why are we doing those? So things like, you know, do people have confidence in what they're going to be working on? Uh, have you talked about the risks? Like, have the team discussed the work and does everyone understand and agree on like, you know, what the next week's gonna look like and uh, what our problems we're likely to face? Uh, do we regularly check up with each other and are all on the same page? Or do we regularly reassess whether what we're doing makes sense? All of those are independent of technology I found. So I haven't really, I haven't really seen yet a big reason to say like, no, this is like, old school, uh, even though the question of, of deployability is still kind of on the back of my mind, uh, but still all of the people problems seem to be addressed by it. And in terms of what do you scrutinize, I guess I kind of started this, this, this whole journey here, like mostly by scrutinizing the engineering pain of like, what sucks guys, what, like, what is your day to day? What does suck for you? Uh, and then just responding to that. And a lot of this was following this thing where like people said like, we have to meet every Monday and then agree on what we're doing and then meet every Friday and then debrief what we're, what we're doing there. So there's a lot of waste in that and also a lot of stress because the cycle is, is really small. So this is what we went with, with the two week thing. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about people just work in silo and no one really knows what they're doing. Uh, so this is where like, hey, stand-ups, planning, but like we share some of the knowledge, we share some of the context about this. So I haven't really found a lot of, I guess, specific metrics that hold a lot of like, that I could stand behind. Like there are a lot that are, you know, valuable, like cycle time, review time, there's a lot of these valuable things. But mostly I try to follow like, do the engineers in the team feel like they're being productive and do they feel like, do they feel confident about their work? And if the answer is no, then there's probably something wrong. And then you try to fix that. Have you found Tom that over, yeah. over, over, uh, over while Cyticle just got larger over a period of time, have you found that there's been a bit more, um, kind of, I don't really want to say red tape, but like governance or compliance or platform engineering level, um, challenges to solve. So the one team isn't quite as autonomous as they maybe used to be a couple of years ago. Um, I guess full transparency, I've been here for around two years, so I haven't seen like a big shift, but where I am right now, I guess from two years ago, even I don't see a lot of, I guess, red tape happening or all of those problems happening, 
but we do have, I guess, more problems around outside the, the product space. So we're, we have, you know, platform teams and all of those supportive teams that are fairly well organized into like working on, it, on the boundaries of the teams and trying to break, break through those. But there are two separate teams that build two separate features that own separate microservices. And then one team might need something from the other team. And then we do work differently. So there's a bit of friction over there. So I feel like because there isn't a lot of, I guess, red tape and a lot of restrictions, we do have some issues of like trying to, you know, trying to figure out how do we interact with this team because we need something from them, but they might, you know, they might not be doing sprints at all. So when we tell them like next sprint, we're doing X, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so those are the kind of issues we have. Uh, but it is true that what happened probably like five or 10 years ago, there were probably a lot of problems that we didn't have, uh, that it just wasn't here to observe. Okay. Thanks. I think one thing that's kind of interesting that you were sort of touching on was around that, um, like deployment cadence aspect of scrum, which I found really interesting because yeah, like you're, you're right. Like in 2001 was kind of when I think that, yeah, in the agile manifesto with Britain. And I think that was sort of getting that sort of more mainstream aspect. And if you look at what's happening at the time, well, the internet's come along. Uh, it's just the other side of the dot-com boom. And this has completely changed how software gets released, right? Like at that point, your people are basically, uh, software becomes on demand, right? Like a website is basically on demand software in a sense. So you don't have to you know, release a, a disk and ship it out. You, know, you don't have to ship what, 30 copy disks to install Windows 95 anymore. Um, which was an interesting night. Um, <laughs> um, as at that point, like, yeah, moving through a two week, two week release cycle would have been absolutely, um, revolutionary. But the thing that I find interesting now is that yes, we have on demand deployments. We can deploy whenever we want, but a deployment is not a release. We're not releasing a feature or every time we make a deployment where you know we're deploying some code and what the business cares about is when is the feature coming where is the feature going to be like what are we going to get the business objective that we're expecting from that feature release um and so i i have feel that there's a need to disconnect the everyday continuous aspect of the sdlc from the process that is okay but how do we ship change in the business that delivers business outcomes um and i feel like that's that, uh, you know, at a certain point, those two things were linked really closely and now they're decoupled. And so, you know, any sort of methodology that we work with needs to address that decoupling to some extent. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, Jonah, what about, what about yourself? Um, yeah, I think sort of my lens of measuring the effectiveness of scrum um well i think there's a few angles one is are this are the developers happy with the way they're working um like are they happy with you know just the way things are being done um scrum's not effective uh developers can get pretty you know you know they, they feel it like it's um it can be a pain to work in a team that just isn't functioning well. So that's one measurement, it's just developer happiness. Um, 
I think another is um, velocity. Like, is uh, is work getting done? Are the organization's project deadlines being met? Um, yeah, those are probably um, the two really that I look at. Cool. Uh, and um, and Mike. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this, and then um, I think I'd probably lean on some war stories for it. So um, I think that. <laughs> showcases and retros seem to be the the area in the in the overall kind of vanilla scrum aspect which often break um and i was reflecting on on kind of why i thought that and so there was a client that we were working with which uh we would do a showcase every two weeks a pretty pretty standard ceremony and the people who were doing the showcase had never been taught how to do a product demo um so what happened was it was really boring to watch and it didn't really have a good flow and the communication was poor. So then after a few months, people stopped showing up and then it, you kind of feel, you know, the engineers felt disempowered. So, you know, we, we took them through some training and we fixed that problem. And I feel that, I feel that because I spent so, me and my team spent so long, uh, so much of our time um, doing analysis on existing systems, systems and system maps and flows and things. So we can, we're pretty good at identifying uh, where there's an opportunity to improve. Um, so for instance, if you have a quality problem, then it's very strongly correlated to the retro actions not being completed. Um, because you do a retro, you, you make everyone feel good, you've got these actions, but then there's too many bugs and you've got to do firefighting, so you never fix the thing. Um, so I think that there's... I, I always think that it's really, really effective to to kind of step back from the, from the, from the situation that has evolved and kind of go... Um, do a bit of a self-assessment and just, you know, try and do it with fresh eyes. Or maybe even when you have a new onboarding person join the team, their their feedback in the first few weeks of joining is the most valuable feedback that you can possibly get because they haven't been indoctrinated into the way that it works and the way that it, ha it has to operate. So they come in with really fresh eyes and fresh, eye fresh eyes, fresh ideas. Um, so I would um, I would hasten any listeners to like really really listen to those those people who are joining the business, um, and I guess to effective to, to determine its effectiveness, uh, it's it's all a, it is about delivering value, and, and you know it's not it's not about writing lines of code. Um, we just happen to write lines of code, and that represents some value. But um, it really is getting in front getting stuff in front of whoever the client is, um, and I I often find that some. Uh, engineers or some some roles kind of forget about that, and they 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 want to gold plate the you know the the underpinnings of the foundational process of like you know, the manufacturing process of getting the software out the door, and they want it to be beautiful and smooth. Um, but sometimes you just need a conversation with the the exec team and go, look, we're going to build a thing. It's a bit hasty. There's going to be a bit of bumps in the road. Is that acceptable? Here's the level of risk. This is what it might do to the commercials or you know customer sat, and they might go, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. And you want to take that leadership and run with it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's a few. There's a few idle thoughts. Yeah, awesome, fantastic. Has, has anybody um, got anything else to add to that at all? I think, in terms of trying to determine its effectiveness, you like you're not going to be able to find a quantitative metric for the effectiveness of Scrum, right? It's always going to be something qualitative, like developer feedback, and then it's also is. Uh, uh, yeah, are we delivering sort of value, right? Um, and how effectively is the team delivering value? But I think often as well, a lot of the challenges that engineering organizations face around questions of, you know, how much value is that the, the engineers delivering 
is actually a problem about communication um, and communicating the value that's being delivered and especially the the things that are, you know, um, kind of fly under the radar a lot for people outside of engineering and engineers need a bit of help talking about. Um, so maybe like sometimes I think process becomes a bit of a lever that businesses like to pull because they don't know what other levers to pull. <laughs> so they might change a process or something on a team that's actually working pretty well, but the problem is actually that they're not communicating the value that they're delivered effectively to the people who are, you know, need to know about it. Sure. Cheers, Anthony. Um, and so, so, Jonah, how do you balance the need for process adherence in Scrum and with the need for innovation and creativity, and also the need to fix technical debt? Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I've, I've been in some teams where this actually felt quite important. So there's always, I mean, the, the, the Scrum goals are often set by the product managers based on the business needs, but there's often a lot of work that the engineering team wants to get done that the product managers don't really have visibility to, or it's, it's not really noisy enough for them to prioritize. So those types of things are often technical debt. Um, so technical debt is something that's like, it's working sort of, like it's not something the product managers notice, but it's like ugly, like it's code that needs to be refactored or it's failing, you know, 5% of the time. Um, it's the bugs, like minor bugs. It's those, it's those nitpicky things that engineers just they want to clean up to make things nice. Oftentimes technically that slows things down as well. Um, so it's often good to have a process to be able to get technical debt work into your sprints. So uh, the way I most liked it is back at Atlassian, we had, uh, we called it a 20% rule. So 20% of the points in any sprint, um, the engineering team had the power to assign. So they would often, they'd use that as an opportunity to slide in the technical debt work or bug fixing or service reliability, code refactoring, those kinds of things. So that allowed that that allowed a nice balance where the product managers, you know, were still empowered to uh, assign the work that needed to be done, but engineering uh, had room to work on you know, the things that they really notice as important. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty pretty logical balance, you know, to be able to have um, the, I guess, like the, the push and pull from, from both sides and uh, being able to, uh, you know, go back and, and fix things that need, need to be done. Um, awesome. Um, what about yourself, Mike? Um, yeah, so I, the innovation and creativity, um, I think that I've used quite a lot of times in the past, um, uh, I like a framework and a methodology. So the framework that I'd use for that um, is the um, it's a modified version of the ThoughtWorks technology radar, which most people probably have heard of. If you haven't, definitely go and Google it. Um, what it does is it it gives you um, four quadrants, um, and one of them is like tools, platforms, uh, practices, and uh, something else. I forget off the top of my head now. Um, but basically what you do is the, the nearer the inner circle. So imagine a, a like a, a fly radar nearer the center point. They're the things like that. We call them the sensible defaults. So they're the things that you just, you'd like, if you were to onboard a new employee, you go all this stuff in the inner circle. That's what we do. That's kind of our, our index or our handbook. 
and the th and then progressively you kind of get to the outer the outer rings the most outer ring is hold or retiring so you go look we've made a we've made an opinionated decision we are not going to do these things anymore so what i find is i find if in order to to allow some creativity but not too much so you kind of derail and everyone wants to try every engineer wants to try the new shiny tool um I find that you you kind of balance it against look is it a, is it going to is does this thing have to go into production is it a sub is it a supporting tool out of the out of the different tiers of um of software that we produce tier one would be we can't make money without this without this software being functional tier two is a bit more um look it's functional it will impact some users if it's not working and the third tier is normally like back-end support stuff reporting now I, I, I quite like to put a percentage of innovation allowed in each of those different um, tiers. So if it's a third-party supporting tool, basically 100% innovation almost, like 90% innovation, go for your life. Choose the nice funky tool. If it's going to be the most critical thing and it's how we make money, then that innovation is going to be turned down to like the 20%. So, you know, you're not going to just completely change your language because you've decided that, like you did, you've decided that you want to be a Rust expert. You know, we're going to stick to what we know. Um, so I was thinking about that. That's that's kind of one area that um, I've used in the past in order to allow allow some flexibility in in the tools that are used in in, in how we build, um, but also create a little structure around it so people just don't go crazy and off the rails. Otherwise, you have a supporting nightmare. Um, and I guess on technical debt, as again I said, like we've you know we do a lot of assessments on on various um, businesses and platforms. Um, we've seen some that have what they believe is no technical debt. That is a red flag. Um, <laughs> you absolutely should have some technical debt, um, and we've got people who just don't know where their technical debt is, and they've never used, they've never even heard of a technical debt register. So, I would just say that there's a conversation to be had again with with leadership, and there's a way of communicating what is the acceptable level of technical debt that this business has, um, how that how that impacts the business and the channels and the growth margins and stuff. All of that needs to tie back into those massive business, um, the big, the large business goals for the, say the quarter or the season of the year, depending on what process you're using. And, um, and then, yeah, just, um, just make sure you measure it and you write this stuff down um, and write those decisions down. So then you can play them back later. Um, I've seen often as well, the, uh, what Tom was, what Tom was uh, describing with you know, the 20%, a, a certain allocation of, oh, uh, Jonah, sorry, was the 20% certain allocation of points. Um, absolutely. We see that all over the place. And that's a really great, it's a really, really great tool in order just to chip away at this stuff. The question there is, um, and Jonah, you probably saw this as well, the larger things, you know, they kind of get saved uh -huh. up and then you'll end up with a maintenance sprint. Um, so there's no production progress at that point, no, no um feature development at that point and you're just fixing those really big problems that don't quite fit into that 20% piece um, and just if that happens just I mean my guidance would just be measure it and make sure that's not happening every three weeks <laughs> three or four weeks but yeah awesome cheers Mike um, Anthony what about yourself yeah um, I mean I think with technical debt one of the things yeah, one of the things that I find actually a bit challenging is the term technical debt it's a bit doesn't really uh, explain the business impact of what's exactly going on often. Um, so I find it kind of hard if it's okay for engineers to talk about tech debt amongst themselves, but I think it's better if they don't use that term when they start talking to other, uh, you know, outside of engineering. Um, but I think often technical debt needs to be framed in terms of the business value and that's tough for engineers, but I think, uh, you know, engineering managers should be able to kind of teach those skills uh to their engineers to be able to communicate the business value 
of addressing particular pieces of uh, technical debt, but there's also ways to make it easier. Um, so I, I give, so for example, service level objectives, right? If you've got uh, some service level objectives and you can see that you're meeting those targets and you're pretty confident that those service level objectives are a good representation of, uh, well, sorry, not good representation, it's strongly correlated to user satisfaction and the ability for you know, the service to deliver value. Um, so they're very, very value orientated. Um, then, you know, if the service level objectives are okay, you're probably all right from tech that perspective. If they start not meeting their service level objectives, probably need to think about, hey, that, that back. Um, and we actually, you know, had a really, really kind of nice instance of that recently where, uh, we had a SLO that was just on the edge over, uh, over a two week period. They were like, oh, this is probably, probably okay. Um, it was not okay in the end at some point because someone put through, uh, you know, made it, made a much larger change than we had anticipated. Uh, and we had a big backlog of, uh, orders that we needed to process. Um, and, uh, we hadn't implemented a way to, to easily scale that up yet. That, that, uh, processing of that queue, that was that piece of tech debt that we were thinking, ah, we can put that off a bit more. Good. Um, and you know, that. That was, uh, yeah, if we'd addressed that when the um, SLO was right on the edge there, we would have actually solved that that problem uh, in advance, right? Um, and uh, essentially, yeah, well, yeah, we would have avoided a, a, a sort of incident that happened. Um, and that's a, like a, a great a great example of, uh, I guess, getting an SLO right, but also making sure you have the, the process around making sure you actually respond to it. Um, but that's also a really good opportunity to go, yeah, look, this was, um, best of those are, are clearly working. We just need to, you know, respond to them a bit, uh, faster when we, um, break them. But that can be a good indication that, you know, if you're writing Scrum, for example, and you're starting to see that you're, uh, maybe not meeting the target for your SLO, um, or, you know, over certain, uh, windows, depends on what window you're looking at as well. Um, that it might be time to actually invest a bit more in, you know, take that for a sprint, for example. Um, but one thing I've actually done in the past, and this kind of comes back to Mike's point around the 20%, um, aspect is if you're try trying to do 20% of the resources that you've got available for a given sprint, there's two ways of doing that. It's 20% of everyone's time or 20% of some, like the, the team's overall time, which could be one person. If you've got five people, 20% is one person of that, uh, in that sprint, you just work on tech debt. Um, and that's a way that you can address those larger projects. Um, like at another org, I use that to get us to continuous deployment. Um, I had a, yeah, one of my engineers working on that for a couple of sprints, I think. Um, and you know, he got to deliver that sort of, uh, uh initiative, but part of the reason we were able to do that sort of thing was that I put together a tech roadmap of here are the, uh, the top priorities of tech debt things. And this is why it's impacting the business, impacting the product. Uh, you know, maybe we want to like tighten up maybe testing and make that more effective and less risky, for example. Um, and then pitch that to product manager, uh, and got his buy-in to go, yeah, okay. You can have an engineer uh, every sprint working on some tech debt stuff so they can focus on it, these problems. 
because the other thing that happens with that twenty percent thing is you get to the towards the end of the sprint, and uh, obviously the twenty percent winds up going last, right? Everything else is the top priority, and uh, things go over or something else comes up, and the first thing that falls off out of the sprint is the tech debt. Um, so. Yeah, and then being able to make a good business case for that is also really important. Yeah, very good point. How do you find the, um, in, in your past experience, uh, where you mentioned how you had just one person working on the technical debt, um, obviously from a from my perspective, obviously speaking to um, lots of engineers um, on, a, on a daily basis, um, you get to understand their, um, their wants from a role. Have you found that when you've allocated that tech debt just to one particular person, um, how, how how well have they received it? Have they been quite willing to do it, or have you had any oh, any friction from it? It's not like they're doing that forever, right? That's not one person forever. That's that's you you'll change that around. So you might go, sure. hey, you know, work on tech debt um, until you completed this this tech debt project, and then you might rotate that to someone yeah. else. Um, you know, you know, as sprint after that or something. Uh, so you definitely don't just leave someone stuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But they usually quite quite like it because they're they're going, oh, there's a spending issue I'd really like to address, and you go, oh, oh now you get to focus on that, and you get to address it. <laughs> no one's going to interrupt you and take it off, take you off it. So, you know, it's Perfect. it's good because they don't feel like they've actually uh, addressed a significant piece of tech that you know, potentially helps the team, which was especially the case with the continuous deployments. Um, yeah. Yeah, awesome, great stuff. Um, and and Tom, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with, with Anthony when he mentioned that like you know, tech that is very engineering word and not very useful in the minor business. I've tried multiple times to explain like tech that, and it's I guess the fact that has the word tech in it already is like oh, this is like some of the stuff you guys have. You care about this, uh, but I guess at the end of the day. Uh, there's like there is the notion of you know with every project we're doing this for a reason and hopefully it's not to make the developers feel good and i found that there are i guess primarily two reasons for tech that one of them is performance so you know that's kind of some teams like separate like performance from tech that some some teams you know put them in the same bucket which is somewhat easier to understand uh, for for example product managers and POs when you say like hey like this page is you know just loading slow and this impacts our users but a lot of them just drill down to after you do like the five whys of like why the hell do we care about any of this is because it will make future addition of future features faster and this is where I found that like a lot of the concession easy for us because we say like hey you know like there is this big feature that we plan to do next year and uh, you know it might take let's say six to nine months, but if you put a month of work in, we're going to shave half of that, and that is very easily understandable by you know by 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 various stakeholders, and this makes them care about this because as far as they're concerned, they're like, oh, so we're just doing like pre work to go faster. I'm like, that's exactly what we're doing, and whether we're you know changing databases in between or whether we're like rewriting a bunch of you know really old code like. That's for engineers to talk about tech depth, but I guess I have found, I am, I guess, lucky enough uh, right now in safety culture and the team that I am in right now that I have a really, I've built a really strong relationship with our product manager. And we initially spent a lot of time just discussing all of those. And I guess it was a lot of me trying to make him understand and care. 
and just after all of the time, I guess I felt like it clicked. And now we're in the situation where like we still do like variation of this, sometimes like 20% of the time for uh for the sprint. Sometimes it's you know, we need to spend uh, you know, a sprint or two or just of, of doing specific things. But it comes more from the fact that we start with like there's a project and we want to do this, and this is why you should care. And then after we get the buy-in, he's like, hey, you know, then the negotiation happens, but it's less of us saying we care about this, but it's more about like trying to to bring the product team over there. And this. So this is like this is where I feel like on one hand I put a bit of work in this. On the other hand, I feel I got lucky that you know I, I work with a product manager who was receptive to this, and now you know. I talked with him about database sharding. He's like, yeah, yeah, we need to put this in. And I'm like, this is great because a year ago, you know, you didn't know what it is and neither you cared about that. Uh, but I guess the other part of this as well is I mentioned that I manage two teams and one of them is kind of like architecture team. So this is, I guess, our way in the business to say some of the tech that items are, are massive. Like when I say, for example, six to nine months, like these are some of the things we, we deal with. For example, like changing database technology and migrating all of our data and, you know, going for horizontal scalability. Like arguably you could say like, this is tech that kind of work. Like we're changing stuff behind the scenes. User will never know this other than through, uh, you know, more stable and performant application. And then the product team will never know this other than like we can iterate on stuff faster. So I guess we kind of cheated, I guess, and within we've split our team into two teams and one team is like, this is what you guys are doing. And the team that is doing the architecture stuff work, like it's kind of a self-selecting situation where engineers who like this kind of work and prefer dealing with all those end up there, which doesn't mean there isn't any other tech that is dealt with on the team that builds features, but I guess in the same way as we plan long projects and features for the feature team, uh, for the architecture team, we plan long projects that are primarily addressing some of the tech that, and then the rest of them is fairly similar. Both of them fix bugs, both of them solve, uh, solve, uh, various customer problems, but the main focus of them is kind of, this is feature centric, and this is very much a addressing larger pieces of tech that, that would create a lot of friction if we tried to negotiate for them every single time against features. So we kind of carve out a portion of the team into its separate unit that just is kind of, I guess, the forever, not forever, but like the for the time being section of people who will be working on that. And that doesn't change because that's kind of the the definition of the team. Well, that's a good question. Did you have mentioned before if you have a platform team as well, or is this so like, is this a platform team or is this a separate? So this is, I guess we have, we have, uh, I guess we have, uh, platform teams and we have what we call, I guess, customer facing engineering teams. So this is very much still a customer facing team. Uh, but I would say that this is kind of the platformy side of this because the team still, for example, says, we know that, you know, we need to build, uh, we need to build a feature next year. And we know that the way we, we, you know, we handle, for example, authorization on the backend is just not scalable. So they build this with the, with, I guess, being very close to the actual need of the customers and actual needs of the features and their roadmap we're building. But I guess the type of work they do is very much this kind of engineering heavy work. While for example, our platform teams are focused more about like our performance overall 
is slow and we're changing something across like five or six different uh i guess uh, functionalities or they're doing support for this shared functionalities for example uh how do we do streaming how do we do syncing of offline work or data which is more kind of shared shared functionality rather than something that is feature dependent and we're very close to still a specific business area and we have i guess a feature set that this team is focused on improving iterative and those performance of those so well there's two teams the one that's working on like new features um are they uh do you find that they still care about the performance of the features that they're shipping and the the non-functional requirements uh, so, so I guess this is the struggle we have uh, because I guess my goal or our goal is to you know, have people care about what the other team is doing, uh, and we guess we've had various attempts of this, and I guess we struggle between how much context do we share and how much do we involve teams in what the other team is doing, versus how much engineers are like we're just spending time in meetings and like we learn stuff, but why do we care about that? So I would say that it is a struggle, uh, but on a practical level, it's, we are, since we're all working in the same domain, uh, it is like, there is, there is a bit of overlap just in general interest of engineers. Like there are some engineers in the, uh, in the feature team that just care a little bit more or, you know, potentially like just wish they could just spend more of the time on performance. So they will be the person who will like champion for performance and would sometimes say like, hey, let's bring, you know, let's bring person X from the other team. Let's consult with them because I feel like this is going to be problematic. And the other way around, there are engineers who, you know, genuinely enjoy building features, but because of their skill set are currently working on refactoring a large piece of work. So then they will often kind of by themselves say like, hey, you know, let's, let's, Let's catch up. Let's bring the you know. Let's bring the other engineers in and see like how does this correlate with what they're doing. But I found that the success we have in this area is very much organic, and it depends on like having people like a little bit cross pollinate a little bit and saying, hey, this like we don't put everyone who cares about performance here and everyone who cares about features here. Like ten or twenty percent of the you know team's preference is kind of misaligned which then, I don't even say it forces the interaction, but I would like to say it happens organically, but at this stage, I am not able to tell you if if this is effective leadership or if we got lucky again on this front. Uh, do you have targets around performance as well? Like a product brought into, yeah, we need to maintain a response time of X or whatever. We have targets around performance, but I think the there are two different kinds of problems we have. And one of them is some areas of product are, I guess, under, I guess, meeting the target for a long time, which makes people just not care. And then it becomes a problem when they, when they go over, or some parts of the system are so much over our target that we know, for example, that like the big database refactor that will take us six months, this will address it. So in that sense, we're trying to address it by, you know, changing comprehensively, but this makes other engineers feel like, okay, this is not my problem because nothing I can do uh, will make uh, make a difference. So I found we have targets and I found them very useful if we are 
fairly close to them or if the things we do affect like have like a very close feedback loop, like we can fix it and then the number will go down um but it is a struggle sometimes like how do we not spend too much time obsessing over this but actually do it when it's when it's important so it's like you, you you're trying to balance the the architecture evolvability with with the business needs and like the needs of the platform it sounds like which is i mean if, if that's right it's it's always a hard one because you understand the architecture the business doesn't really understand it um yeah yeah you're you're in a hard place i suppose the bigger the platform the more architecture needs to be evolved often you know the the more the more work it is to maintain that's always an interesting thing for me like the longer something lives the more maintenance that it generally takes um which is why i love i love retiring code i don't know about anyone else but just being able to slice off an entire service oh it makes me feel great it makes me feel like i've achieved just today, I joked that my dream job would be in a janitor team that just goes and cleans stuff up and makes things nicer. Uh, but I don't think that job exists. Uh, so maybe I need to invent it, you know? Code janitor. I love that. <laughs> so it's a good way of putting it, isn't it? Fantastic. Awesome. Well, um, well no, that, thanks guys for, for joining. Um, I think there's been some some great insights there into the different methodologies that the people can adopt, and um, you know I'm sure that there's going to be some listeners that are, are considering um, maybe shifting um, and adopting a different methodology. And uh, the the experiences that you guys have had, I'm sure they'll be able to um, take that into consideration, and and will help with their decision making. Um, but yeah, thanks thanks again for joining. It's uh, it's been good to hear all your insights.